1: Thank you so much for being here. I'm Sheila Muthi, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm, and I'm so honored and delighted to introduce to each of you our two brilliant attorneys who are here with me on t- to share, to discuss today's panel topic, which is the employment-based third preference to employment-based second preference, or EB3 to EB2, potential upgrade issues. The two attorneys I have who are my colleagues here at the Murthy Law Firm are Kevin Andrews, who's been with the firm for approximately eight years, as well as Jessica Beaver, who's been with the uh, the firm approximately five years and in fact focuses her entire time, effort and energy in dealing with PERM labor certification related issues. So clearly we have a wealth of knowledge in here and of course I started the firm as you know over 21 years ago as Sheila Murthy as Murthy Law Firm or Law Office of Sheila Murthy back then and five years or so before that I was practicing. So between the three of us clearly more than a quarter century maybe closer to a half century but you know what you've got the Murthy team guiding and helping you. So today's overview, we hope to touch upon a little bit about the background of EB2 versus EB3 and talking about edu- requirements like education, work experience, a little touching briefly on job zones and business necessity, and very important priority date retention, which have which has undergone some recent potential changes that may not be so good from the employee's perspective. And then to talk about the EB2 exceptional ability category which is very, very different than the other EB-1 and regular EB-2 and IW cases where a person can use potentially an EB-3 labor certification. So let's start with a little bit of background uh, on the EB-2 versus EB-3 issue. Kevin, can I ask you to start?
2: Absolutely. Thank you, Sheila. So uh, I think employers really um, need to have some context and background about what this whole EB-3 and EB-2 thing is. I know I get a lot of calls from employers who are... Uh, are have employees maybe with current EB-3 cases that are asking for the EB-2 upgrade. So, you know, what, what is that? Um, so EB-2 and EB-3 are discussing uh, or refer to preference categories in the Visa Bulletin, and uh, there are different cutoff dates. You know, EB-2 for uh, certain foreign nationals historically moves a little bit quicker than the EB-3 uh, cases, and so people with EB three cases are, are are pending and in the queue and in the system a little bit longer than, than EB two cases. I think some specific examples. What we see is, uh, you know, Indian nationals that have EB three cases have a much longer wait time uh, for the green card processing than those with EB two cases. And. During the course of their career, you know, they, they sometimes get master's degrees or maybe qualify for what well, we'll talk about, this exceptional ability, and want to do that upgrade to uh, to EB2. But I think, um, you know, Jessica, in your experience, right, so there are some other uh, countries where, you know, the EB3 to EB2 doesn't work the same way as, as India, right?
0: Um, for example, historically, China itself has been flip-flopped. But in the past two months, um, India is on par also with, with EB2 coming
1: faster now than EB3, which can change at any time. Right. So at one point you mean it was actually much faster in E B three China than E B two China, but now it's similar to India in that respect, now meaning as we're recording this in and you know, in early June of twenty fifteen. Correct.
2: Yeah, so I think employers can look at that visa bulletin that's on the uh, Department of State website that's published every month to see, you know, what are the wait times for which category and which country of, of uh, origin to get an idea of, you know, the kind of inquiries and, you know, questions that some of their work staff might be asking about these upgrades. Um, but, you know, there are there are some different requirements that I think we can explore a little bit.
1: And it's not really an upgrade, though, right? It's more like, as we said, a completely new, fresh application
2: that's yeah, that, that's actually a really good point, Sheila. Um, it, it, you know, upgrade is kind of like uh, the shorthand that, that, that we use, uh, the parlance that we use. What it's referring to, as you said, is doing a, a brand new green card case, uh, filing a new I-140, and then the ability to retain the priority date from the original case mm-hmm. is what gives you that benefit of what we call the upgrade. And we'll be talking about some recent developments with that as well. But, yes, mm-hmm. it, it is a new case that, you know, either the same employer or a different employer would need to file Um, in or and and try to retain that earlier priority date to to upgrading and ultimately for the beneficiary worker to get to the green card a little bit quicker
1: okay so Jessica if I can have you just discuss the basic requirements for an EB2 application sure Sheila an EB2 position is one that requires a
0: person with an advanced degree or its equivalent or a person with exceptional ability we'll be touching on exceptional ability a little bit later Advanced degree in itself means the position can only be filled by someone who at a minimum holds a master's degree or a bachelor's degree and five years of progressive experience past that bachelor's. And it's important to know that it also means the equivalent of and we'll be touching on some of our foreign equivalency um, shortly. Once you've established that the position qualifies for EB-2, once again meaning that at least that master's degree or at least that bachelor's degree and five years of progressive experience, you need to also ensure that the beneficiary meets these requirements. This means that the foreign national must have the required advanced degree, meaning either the master's or the bachelor's and five years of experience before the filing of the labor certification.
1: Okay, and what about the degrees? So just to briefly touch upon it, if the foreign national has a foreign degree, the burden is on that applicant or candidate to show that it is the equivalent to a U.S. degree. And the USCIS has come back and said that the degree must be a single source of education, one that cannot use a combination of education to meet the bachelor's or the uh, master's degree requirement. And the degree must be issued by an accredited university. And assuming that the school is accredited, online degrees are fine and acceptable and for example what we've seen here is that a three-year bachelor's degree from the UK has been equal to a US bachelor's degree on the other hand a three-year bachelor's degree from a country like India has often not been found to equate to a u.s. bachelor's degree in and of itself but if that particular individual let's say in this example from India with a three-year Indian bachelor's B.S. in science, along with a two- or three-year Indian master's degree, then that combination could potentially equate to a U.S. baccalaureate degree, which is a four-year degree in the U.S. compared to a three-year B.S.C. degree, um, or um, or even a U.S. master's degree for purposes of meeting the educational requirement.
2: Yeah, and Sheila, one thing to point out about that, it's, uh, you know, because... USCIS does take that position that it, the the education must be a single source degree equivalent to whatever the advanced degree is. So those situations uh, where somebody has a three year degree and then pursues a you know either a three year master's or a two year master's after the three year bachelor's degree, the the argument really is that 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 final degree that that uh, post baccalaureate degree, whether it be the two year or the three year, is the single source equivalent of whatever degree it is that you're trying to meet. It could so even
1: be a one year. The person starts for an uh, example a BCOM three-year and then goes to an MCOM, uh, it could potentially also equate to by showing the educational equivalent.
2: Right, yeah, and, and in that case, I think typically the BCOM and MCOM, if we're talking about India, is a three plus three, usually. Um, so that three plus three, that three-year master's degree would be the representation of a single source US no, master's degree. No, actually,
1: what if the person just does a one-year towards the MCOM, doesn't finish it, and then con- gets uh, a job here?
2: OK, and so you're saying they do three years, and then they do one year of MCOM, but don't complete. Right. Uh that can be kinda of tricky. I think that uh, well one thing I, I would say there is it depends on what the degree the three what the um the masters program if they determine for entry into that program if Mm -hmm. that person had the equivalent U.S. bachelor's degree. But have you seen situations where you can use the three years and then an uncompleted one year? Well, it could be potentially a
1: master of information systems, business, finance, analysis. Depends on the job, I guess, financial analyst versus computer programmer, which might require a computer science-related degree.
0: Which also brings me to an excellent point is that since the burden is on the foreign national to show that they have the equivalent of this degree, you know, obtaining a credentials evaluation from a reputable professional evaluator is essential. They need to be familiar with and use AcroEdge. Um, The USCS has used and cited these evaluations, but they're not necessarily controlling. Um, The reason this is important is because they look at the accreditation of the schools as well as, you know, the equivalency. And um, keep in mind that these credentials evaluations that you've used for your H-1B petitions that have potentially used the three-year Indian degree and then even experience will not be able to be used for this EB-2 category. Your experience alone is what is going to give you the equivalent of a bachelor's. So I find that some of our clients don't realize that they qualified for the H-1B, you know, specialty occupation, using the combination of education and experience, but then may not understand why they don't qualify for this EB-2 category.
1: Okay. Okay,
2: so yeah, I mean, I think the basic points to take away from, you know, if you're trying to upgrade from EB-3 to EB-2 on the basis of possessing an advanced degree if the individual does have foreign education gonna have to have a credentials evaluation to analyze that but typically uh, especially if we're talking about indian uh, nationals uh... someone with a three-year plus a two-year or a three-year plus a three-year uh... masters degree would probably qualify for eb-2 if their labor was done uh... correctly what Uh, about
1: using the on the job experience
2: yes that's another great point because uh... you know some some situations you know we've been focusing a little bit about the the masters degree or equivalent part but as jessica mentioned You could also qualify for advanced degree if the job requires and the beneficiary possesses a bachelor's degree or foreign equivalent, followed by five years of progressive experience after that. So then the question becomes, well, what experience can I use? And, uh, you know, there is a general rule out there that the experience gained on the job with the sponsoring employer that's doing the labor certification cannot be used to qualify for the EB-2 position. But there is an exception, and that exception is if the job – uh the the position that the person was performing that that you know that experience that they gained is substantially different or 51 percent or more at least 51 percent or more different than the job that the person is being sponsored for that is experience that could be uh that could be used but that's an analysis that would definitely have to be done at an early stage.
0: And I was just gonna mention Kevin that we're seeing USCIS really crack down on this use of on the job experience. So it's very important to look at these things closely before spending your time and money going through the case is to look at this before the labor is filed. So in the
1: perfect ideal world, the experience ideally should have been with employ. if you're working with employer C, hopefully your five years work experience after your four-year bachelor's degree in bachelor's in electronics or communication engineering, et cetera, is let's say three years with Company A, two years with or three more years with Company B, and now you apply with Company C who's gonna do your green card processing, and Company C, then we don't have to show any of the job experience. On the other hand, if you had three years with Company A, and now Company B is doing your green card processing, and you worked for three years with Company B, and you want your EB-2, That's where the gray area comes in. You can if you show the 51 percent difference, as Kevin pointed out, minimum 51 percent different. Ideally, I like to say 80, 90, 100 percent different because you don't want the red flag to be raised and you want to focus on this whole issue of trying to show why you couldn't just hire another US worker to do that job if you were willing to train a foreign national and give them that three years of work experience in your company, why you're now saying I need minimum five years work experience, which to them it could be considered as unduly restrictive or tailoring the requirements just to suit this particular individual and help them out.
2: Yeah, Sheila, it's it's quite a Rubik's Cube that the employers have to play with here because, like you said, on the one hand, it's like, well, if the job requires that much experience, are you just tailoring to what the, the foreign national has, or is it really what the minimum requirements are? And if it really is the minimum requirements, then there's a, a question of, the uh, the wage because if a, j- a job that requires a bachelor's in five years of experience is probably going to be the highest wage level uh... for when you get to the prevailing wage requirement that could that could be uh... you know cost prohibitive for the employer so uh... it's a lot of things to play around with at the very beginning to tweak it and get it all to a good place before you are even ready to really you know uh... proceed with the filing
1: okay and of course at the end of the day every employer has to show good faith recruitment That the proposed position is a true, real requirement at the company, at the with the employer, and those are the true bona fide minimum. Uh, requirements for the job, not the best or the most qualified as with certain teaching tenure track faculty positions. These are for regular positions. We have to act, take the minimally qualified candidate to do the job, which from for you all as employers, it's not that easy to try to show because, of course, the employee is trying to push you for the EB-2 and you're trying to juggle and figure out why you need to go through this exercise again, If, especially if you've already previously done an EB-3 for the same employee or It's an EB-3 with a different employer, and now that person's joining you for this new EB-2 processing with your company. Let's jump to the issue of priority date, retaining the priority date, which is now this hot topic. Jessica, can I start with you?
0: Sure. So, I find that a lot of people confuse the priority date retention with AC-21 portability. When a person has that approved I-140, their 45 has been pending 180 days, and they want to move to a same or similar job that's a little bit different. This is where the new labor certification can be in a totally different position, you know, even a totally different employer, and the new I-140 can either be used to file the 45, or if the 45 happens to be pending, it can be interfiled into the 45. The reason this is such a hot topic is because the regulations specifically mention that a beneficiary can retain a priority date from a previous I-140 petition for any subsequently filed and approved I-140 petition. In fact, even if there are multiple petitions, the beneficiary can retain the earliest priority date. The regulation gets a little tricky because it indicates that a petition that is revoked will not confer a priority date.
1: So that's really what's causing, I guess, some of this. And we've seen this recent case that some of you may be aware of. Uh, First, we have the USCIS Adjudicators Field Manual, what we call the AFM, um, which clarifies that the priority date cannot be retained for a petition that was revoked for fraud or willful misrepresentation only, indicating that if it was withdrawn for any other reason, for example, the employer saying I need to revoke it because I can't meet my financial ability to pay test with, uh, for a new I-140 for a new employee, then perhaps that individual could still retain the earlier priority date. However, there's been a very recent non-precedent Administrative Appeals Office case and recent USCIS decisions which seem to indicate some type of a policy shift where it could very well end up becoming where the employee or the beneficiary may no longer be able to retain the earlier priority date even if the employer has simply decided to withdraw or revoke the I-140 petition in order to deal with their own internal financial ability to pay tests as opposed to fraud or willful misrepresentation, etc. So we're going to have to see where that will pan out. Anybody has comments? Yeah, uh,
2: yeah. I mean, I think with with this trend, um, you know, the law says that an I one forty is can be revoked for good and sufficient cause. I mean, that's what the law states, and then the regulation starts to clarify that a little bit, um, and the. USCIS's guidance basically makes this distinction about fraud or willful misrepresentation. Uh, there was a case, and it was I think it was actually the Board of Immigration Appeals, which is part of Department of Justice. But anyway, that case, uh, they said there's they don't see any authority in that non presidential case that would allow for someone to retain the priority date of a I one forty that was just simply withdrawn by the employer, not revoked because of something you know substantive like the thing like what Sheila was mentioning, but just withdrawn by the employer. And that's that's a shift that's a little bit different from what we've um, we've been seeing in practice and i think recently we've actually seen one or two cases where uscis has taken this position too so when it was just a you know non-precedent case from the bia which is not even part of department of homeland security and uscis you know when it was you know in that area over there people saying it that's one thing but now i think we're starting to see a policy shift with USCIS. So I I don't think it's going to go away. But what I think employers and and, and employees need to be aware of is just, you know, prepare for the worst and hope for the best and just know that the withdrawal of the I-140 petition could have an implication um, with the priority date retention, which would be huge. I mean, that's huge for the upgrade. It's uh, huge
1: for everybody in the world, but particularly for nationals of India and possibly China, because right. the, one of the main things that they are excited about is to retain that priority date. And if that gets revoked and that ruins their entire life, the question is whether you all as employers need to revoke other uh, I-140 petitions. And if you are doing it, then do you care about the impact on the individual Who might have already left your employment because then you might be hiring other people similarly for your company that might now no longer be able to enjoy the benefit of the earlier priority date Um, and it really doesn't make
2: sense if you think about you know jessica said that you know ac21 portability is is not the same thing but it's kind of i feel like the policy purpose of ac21 and the priority date retention is the same job flexibility you know these cases take a long time you need to have some flexibility in your green card case and eventually, after a lot of fighting over the years with AC-21 portability, USCIS finally conceded that, okay, well, the withdrawal of the I-140 after the 45 has been pending 180 days, still that's still a valid, quote-unquote, valid I-140 for AC-21 purposes. I, I mean, maybe that requires some advocacy to get a similar, you know, hard position from USCIS on the priority date retention.
1: Okay, J- Jessica, did you want to add anything more? I was just gonna
0: say that, you know, we still see cases in our office every day where they are retaining the priority date, We just wanted to bring this to everyone's attention that it could become, you know, a new trend. So it's something something definitely to think about.
1: Okay, so be forewarned, unfortunately, doesn't look like it's going to be helpful for companies or their employees, though it might actually benefit the company, if not the employee, though you have to straddle that line helping both sides. So let's jump to the actual true upgrade, as they call it, because you could use potentially an EB3 PERM application that was filed. And an employer could potentially file a new EB-2 based on exceptional ability, even where the candidate does not have a U.S. master's degree or its equivalent, or bachelor's and five years of work experience. Kevin, if I can have you, because I know you've been doing a lot of these cases at the multi-law firm, whether you could just go over the criteria and how we can try, how you, how you all as employers uh, can try to meet the exceptional ability standard.
2: Absolutely. And I, and I know Jessica's worked on a lot of these cases, too. Um, but we've had some success with this. And, you know, a lot of employers are, I think, getting a lot of questions from, from their workers, from their H-1B workers with you know, EB-3 cases about this upgrade to EB-2 based on exceptional ability. And I think one reason why it's appealing is, you know, if you're working for the same company who has sponsored you for the EB-3 case, and you can use the existing EB-3 labor to upgrade to EB-2 with the same company based on exceptional ability, uh, it, it can really reduce the, the processing time, uh, if, if the person qualifies. The thing about exceptional ability is, and we'll get into what it means, but it's, not, uh, it, it's a very rare filing. It's something, you know, you can qualify for EB-2 based on either advanced degree or exceptional ability, and probably 9.5 times out of 10, the cases are filed based on advanced degree. And uh, you know, most exceptional ability cases are, I think, are probably filed with this national interest waiver that doesn't require the labor. But they don't always have to be that way, and we filed uh, several cases like that. So, using the EB three uh, uh, labor with the existing employer to upgrade to EB two based on exceptional ability, there there's a few things that that need to be met. First, you know, exceptional ability is defined as having an uh, an expertise or a skill set that is quote significantly above what is normally encountered in the field. Um, and part of that requires meeting some regulatory criteria, which is something that I, I think a lot of people focus on. But the critical thing is it's a comparative analysis. You know, what is the baseline in the field, and how, have you, how has this worker been recognized as being significantly above that, that baseline? So I think, you know, just to break this down, you know, one component is demonstrating how the beneficiary's expertise is significantly above others in the field. There also needs to be uh, evidence that the beneficiary's exceptional ability will provide a substantial national benefit. It's not something that USCIS always focuses on, but it is part of the requirements. And then the third thing is that the job uh, described that you know needs that, that I'm sorry, the job that's described in the labor certification in that EB-3 labor that has EB-3 level education and experience. We need to be able to explain why that job requires at minimum. Someone with exceptional ability. So how to do that uh, on a case by case basis? I don't think there's a uniform way to do it, but um,
1: so just to clarify again, Kevin, so when you say that the beneficiary's exceptional ability will provide a substantial national benefit, it's beginning to sound awfully close to eB two national interest waiver. It's mm-hmm. using the same you know, substantial in the other case, it's showing how the person does not have to go through the labor certification. Right. And apply for a waiver of the labor certification based on showing national interest to the United States. This is saying we'll provide a substantial national benefit to the U.S. and show that you're, you know, substantially above everybody else. Uh, and yes the part that's different is the labor certification but it's sounding a little bit closer to that how is it different
2: Well it's the you know the law itself in the statute in, in the Immigration Nationality Act it, it kind of the way it phrases it is you know somebody because because of their exceptional ability will provide substantial national benefit uh, so they the way this that's phrased in the statute is almost like it's a byproduct of the person's exceptional ability to be honest with you I don't think I've seen cases where USCIS is focused on well, how is this substantially benefiting, you know, uh, the the nation? Although a lot of our cases do have that that impact. I think impact is the main thing that's the critical component of, of the cases that I've worked on. How about you, Jessica?
0: Um, before I get to the impact and recognition, I just want to touch base on, you know, what Kevin was, was talking about was the labor certification. It really is important to look at that EB3 labor before deciding to proceed with the exceptional ability to make sure that the labor was not, approved, you know, poss- potentially an error. Um, the USCIS, you know, has kind of shifted its policy on educational equivalency over the years. Some things that were okay in the past may not be okay now. Right. So it's really important to take a look at that labor, make sure that, you know, you're not kind of disturbing that EB-3 case that you already have.
2: I'm really glad you brought that up because I feel like, and you probably get this too, The one of the first questions you get is, if I do this EB-2 exceptional ability case, is it gonna mess up my EB-3 case that I've already, you know, had filed? And my answer is generally no, unless... The f- there, there was some issue in the original case that now you're giving USCIS an opportunity to see that as an issue. You know, t- Just checking bachelor's degree as opposed to doing some combination language that has been tweaked and evolved over the years. If it wasn't done in that initial case and it just kind of got uh, I've seen one or two cases where it was like actually this was not kind of done correctly and it could be a problem by putting it in front of USCIS again and we've recommended to, if you want to do exceptional ability, do a new labor. So yeah that assessment of the labor up front is really, Which was going really to important.
1: be one of my questions. So in some cases because it's an EB3 labor would be actually want to do a fresh either new E B three or maybe a be, even better do a new E B two labor for a new exceptional ability E B two filing? Um,
2: well I think uh, before we get okay. into okay. that. So let's I think go back to I think to, to, you were
1: asking we were talking about you know how can one demonstrate the impact and recognition of the beneficiary's accomplishments to satisfy this EB2 exceptional ability criteria, Jessica? Sure. So one of the ways to to show that impact and recognition
0: of the beneficiary's accomplishments is are letters from entities who benefited from the beneficiary's accomplishments explaining their impact um, you know providing testimony even publications about the accomplishments it's important to know that just what one knows is not as important as what you can point to for how they apply their knowledge their recognition you know among their peers in their fields performing job duties you know very well is not the same as perform performing significant significantly above similarly employed professionals
2: yeah I think that impact and, and recognition of the impact that you've had is is the critical thing you know I often get people who tell me you know job duties, but if I don't understand the impact of the performance of those job duties it's probably not going to reach that level of exceptional ability and you know s- software developers are going to develop software, but it's what have you developed that that is innovative that has had a significant impact compared to others in your field and how have you been recognized for that impact I think is a preliminary step before we get into what you were talking about, Sheila about uh, how we can um Uh, reverse-engineer those significant contributions to the job duties uh, in, in the labor itself.
1: But also let's remember we're talking to employers whose main job or interest is in protecting their employees as their most valuable assets. Mm-hmm. So since we're not dealing with the individuals who are of course banging down on the door of an employee, you all of you on the full conference call as employers asking will you do any new EB2 case for me, we're saying one of the options besides doing a brand new fresh labor certification is to consider whether there's an exceptional ability uh, option where we can save the time and money in filing a fresh labor certification and just have the individual possibly file an I 140 petition. Right, it'd be a speeding. lot cheaper
2: for the employer, be a lot quicker for the employee, so win 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 all around. If you exactly,
1: exactly. So let's go to this other issue, which is an EB2, and we've touched upon this briefly an EB2, I 140 based on exceptional ability will still require the labor certification, which can have either EB2 or an EB3 level education and experience requirements. Well, really,
2: just EB three level. If it's EB two level, you just file it as a regular EB two. But if it has EB three level education and experience, uh, it could potentially qualify for EB two based on exceptional ability. the The critical thing, uh, and uh, just the critical thing there, I think, is just showing that there is a clear connection between the job duties and uh, what it is the person. Perform, how the, what it is the perfect person has achieved or the significant contributions that that person has made so you know in other words the job duties that are listed in the labor in section H 11 of the labor need to if those job duties are performed significantly well need to translate into whatever it is the person has been recognized for you know that makes them significant so if
1: so you're saying in other words that the USCIS could deny the exceptional ability filing if the foreign worker uh, workers' achievements or contributions are something unrelated to the job that's listed in the labor certification. So if they've gotten fabulous accolades and accomplishments and awards, but it's not connected, then it's irrelevant as far as USCIS. Exactly.
2: Is. Like, so let's say the labor is for software developer that designs, develops, gathers user requirements, that kind of thing. And you have a candidate who's a brilliant person who you know is a software developer, but in their spare time they design, you know, jet propulsion systems and design the new, you know, engine that is going to take us to Mars. I mean, that's an amazing accomplishment, probably a lot more than just exceptional. But if it's not related to the job, the the labor, if we're going to get this person an EB2 based on that accomplishment, it would need to be for a labor that requires job duties that would lead to the development of that propulsion system, not The software development. Okay,
1: so before we go to trends and examples that I'd love, I think that will bring some of this, what we're talking into focus for employers on this conference call, is we just need to point out that there's little or no guidance on how to articulate the requirement that the applicant or the individual must demonstrate that the job requires an alien of exceptional ability. And because there's no guidance on how to articulate this requirement in the PERM application, it certainly is where you have a lot of gray area and very, very few lawyers and law firms across the country are even familiar or really take advantage and know how to take advantage of this EB-2 exceptional ability. Though, of course, at the multi-law firm, we've had tremendous success and examples. So talking about success and examples, Kevin, uh, could you start us off with a few examples, and then maybe Jessica, you'll give us some as well.
2: Uh, absolutely. I think uh, well, one trend I want to just point out uh, in the last few weeks, we've seen uh, several EB-2 exceptional ability cases that have been approved, and it was uh, situations where the beneficiary was working for a government entity client and made some sort of uh, achievement or contribution, and the government entity client was willing to explain, you know, the impact. So, uh, so some examples of that is, you know, we had we had an IT professional who developed an IT solution for a federal government agency, and this government agency provided a very detailed letter explaining uh, not just why the not just the fact that this person developed the IT solution, but also the impact of this IT solution. And in this particular case, the impact was. Uh, it related to the 2008 global financial crisis. This agency was tasked with dealing with some of the consequences of the global recession at that time, and provided a very detailed letter explaining basically how this individual made this developed an IT solution that really helped them perform that that really you know huge task. And, and so uh, you know the letter was maybe two or three pages long, but it was detailed about that impact, and I think that's what really won the case. That was after an RFE was issued, um, and it, it, the the case USCIS seemed to not really understand what we were asking for because, you know, it was an EB-3 labor with the EB-2 exceptional ability component. But when we were able to explain that impact to this federal agency, I, I think they saw it and, and they approved What it about other
1: occupations instead of just IT field? Are there like other engineering, like a civil engineer?
2: Yeah, actually, we had a civil engineering professional who, um, this person developed safety guidelines and protocols for a highway administration in one of the states in our United States. And this highway administration provided a letter explaining how it eliminated these protocols after a couple years completely eliminated road you know injuries that they were having you know people driving really fast on one of these uh, for, on the the on, for, on the for the government workers working on the highway exactly and, and and even the workers provided testimonials explaining how how amazing the system is and how much sense it made and this state actually um, provided these protocols to another state who had no they because they, they had no plans and that other state also said hey this was amazing and thank you so much we didn't know that it was this guy who did it but you know thank you so all of that testimonial uh, the the letter and the testimonial stuff from the workers I think provided a total picture that this is something amazing It's something significantly above what you would expect others that are similarly employed to perform and here's the impact we're saving lives we're preventing injury
1: So is it primarily then only government related entities or can we, can somebody show that I'm doing work for a private employer? We've, I think you've seen some cases. Yeah, right? we've seen some we've seen some cases where we've been able to get approvals
0: for people in that private sector. For example, we had an individual who was a pharmaceutical professional who developed a drug manufacturing process that significantly reduced the processing time and cost of the generic drug development. So while, you know, for this employer, reducing the amount of time and, and, and being able to process the drug a lot faster obviously was very um, beneficial to the company because it generated revenue, it cut down time, it was able to kind of revolutionize the, the generic drug development.
2: And Jessica, that's a really good point because, you know, we, we were talking about this thing about the the job itself, the E B three job must require a worker with exceptional ability. And so the pharmaceutical manufacturer uh, example, I think what we were able to describe is, you know, look, this is a startup pharmaceutical manufacturing company. I think one of the things that this guy had was like 10 or 20 years of experience working with the, the federal regulations and stuff. And, and that was very helpful for the startup. And But in addition to that, this person who developed this process that created a much higher profit margin, it was almost a- existential to, to the p- sponsoring employer. And that's how we were able to explain that, look, this this job, this uh, we really need someone with this exceptional level in order to be able to remain competitive. So, if it's, I think if it's generating a lot of revenue and uh, reputational value to the company, that's probably sufficient to show the, the nexus between the, the minimum requirements and uh, for exceptional ability. At least that's been my experience so far. I haven't seen. USCIS really point to that as the weakness in the what case.
1: What about if a person's a fairly fresh graduate? No chance, no way of EB two. Is there any chance for somebody who's right out of college? Sure,
0: we've we've seen an engineering student that just came right out of college and developed a new tool that was well received at you know several trade shows, and we were able to kind of tie it back to those those letters and you know examples of the trade show, showing the brochure, showing everything that this um, you know college graduate had. You know, developed.
2: Yeah, he was working on OPT for the sponsoring employer, and then when they sponsored him for the H, and then started doing the green card case. Yeah, he was bachelors and and nothing, you know, fresh out of school. But while he was doing his OPT, he developed this this um, this this tool that's like a very user-friendly and it, it was the 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 impact there was how well received the tool that he developed was in the market they went to trade shows and there were these government entities buying it um, and the non-government entities buying it for commercial use and, and various things and and we were able to show all that and we were able to show you know a lot of sometimes in my consults on these cases people ask me like well is this enough is this enough and sometimes I tell them you know I I, I use uh, like if you shop online and you're you doing research for something and then you maybe they'll have customer reviews and then it'll be like you know five stars and and or four stars or whatever. If I'm looking for something, like if I'm shopping for a book or something, and there are 10,000 reviews at four and a half stars, that's going to look more exceptional to me than something with just one or two reviews at three stars. And so I, I try to use that analogy when I'm talking to people about what you need to do to document the exceptional ability. It's a totality of the circumstances. It's really about putting weights on a scale, and it's not like, oh, three is enough, four is enough. It's really whatever you can get. We don't really know what is enough, but uh, the the more you can provide, the better, I think, is is the main thing, and enough to sufficiently show impact.
1: And I guess the bottom line of everything that Jessica Beaver, Kevin Andrews, and myself are talking about, myself, Sheila Murthy, are talking, discussing here, is you as an employer will be asked often... You know, to think outside the box, to offer other solutions, to retain, to attract, and to retain your most valued employees. Uh, And so, the EB-2 upgrade, the exceptional ability option, uh, are just different options, and that we would like for you to consider. And as you can appreciate from the level of discussion from amongst just the three of us, and think of if we get all you know, 25 or 20 plus attorneys at the firm, law firm, to come in and start analyzing and discussing issues. So many of these issues dealing with perm and with the. Labor certification are so complex, uh, you know, in terms of upgrading from EB-2 to EB-3, filing the new case, exceptional ability, looking at the person's foreign education, trying to equate it to a U.S. educational degree, using on-the-job experience versus experience with an outside employer, uh, the the importance of job zones and business necessity, which I don't think we touched upon a whole lot. Um, But basically, you can't say that this person, this job is just because I need this person. And if you're using something that's considered outside of the norm, what Department of Labor considers within a specific job zone, then you might need something called a business necessity letter to justify it as an employer, why you need extra additional years of education or additional years of work experience for the candidate. And then, of course, from the employee's point of view, the priority date retention, which will help you to retain and file for that person, maybe an EB-2 or an exceptional ability case. So we just thought it would be extremely important to share all of this with you so that you can now showcase your newfound knowledge by listening to three of us analyzing and discussing these issues when your employee walks into the door as soon as you get done with today's conference call and says, hey, HR professional or hey, hey, you know Cindy or whoever, you know, I'd really like for you to consider an EB2. you at least have some preliminary answers that you can consider and look at in determining and saying, you know what? there might just be an opportunity. Why don't we schedule a time for you to talk and speak with one of our fantastic colleagues at the multi-law firm so that we can continue to take care of you and try to maybe get you the green card in this lifetime and stuff in your next lifetime as a business owner myself, Uh, we always realize that the most valuable assets in any business are our people. And so by teaming up with the Murthy Law Firm, hopefully we are helping you to continue to succeed and retain and take care of your most valued assets, namely your employees. On behalf of Kevin Andrews, Jessica Beaver, myself, Sheila Murthy, and and our entire Murthy Law Firm family, we wish you Uh, continued success. Have a fabulous summer, and we really look forward to taking great care of you with all of your immigration matters. Thank you, and have a good day.